The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. It's episode 158. I am thrilled to be here with a couple of my buddies, Charlie Thompson and John Cameron, and we're going to talk all about the latest Michael Jackson news today. We've got so much of that. We're also going to talk about some amazing projects that have been coming out of the community lately. Uh, some unfortunate news around the Robson case, uh, very possibly progressing to trial at this point. But we're going to round the episode out with a great uh, deep dive discussion into John Cameron's latest podcast effort, all about Michael Jackson during the bad era, which I can't wait to get into. Uh, so before we get into all that, let's welcome our guests, Charlie Welcome back to the MJ Cast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. You okay? I'm doing really well. Uh, just got to say before we kick off, well done. Uh, great, great work on the Geraldine Hughes episode for Vindication Day. That was phenomenal. I love listening to that interview. Oh, thank you very much. Feels like forever ago we recorded that one. Um, I guess it kind of was, hey, because it was delayed. Um, <laughs> but we want to give the, the listeners sort of the inside story on why that one took so long and all the drama behind that. So uh, if you stick around, if, if listeners stick around uh, at the end of the show, we'll, we'll go into a little bit of detail on that. But I'm so glad that that one's out and people are enjoying it. John Cameron, welcome to the MJ cast. It's been a few episodes since we've had you on. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your latest episode of JC's Musicology. Welcome back. I can't wait for us to talk about that episode. Likewise, there's uh, about two and a half years of making we can talk about and a lot of stress I, I've that's accumulated over that period. So I look forward to it. Yeah, it definitely stands out as I think... Um you know, much grander in scope than than uh, your other episodes. It's it goes for two and a bit hours, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I woke up at one a.m. last night not being able to sleep, and I made the stupid mistake of putting that on because I, I guess how it's meant to work is you put something boring on to get you back to sleep. But that one kept me up for another additional two hours, and uh, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to every moment. So I can't wait to to talk about why a bit later in the show. Well, that's a. Uh a wonderful compliment, I think. <laughs> All right, let's go. So we've got a whole bunch of Michael Jackson news to talk about. We'll, we'll try to get through some of these pretty quickly so we can get to our two main discussion topics towards the end of the show of the, the Robson Savechuck case progressing to trial and, and then also your amazing podcast episode. So let's get into it. Let's kick things off by talking about Kingvention. Uh, convention, of course, is run by the the MJ Vibe crew, Pez Jacks and and his partner Seb, and it happens in London. It's it's the world's biggest Michael Jackson convention, and they're coming back in 2023 this year with a new convention. Two dates, 28th and 29th of October, and so far they've announced a few guests that I'm I'm really excited for. Actually, I wish I was in London to be able to go see it. Uh, so far, they've announced Nicholas Pike, who was a composer on the Ghosts and You Rock My World videos, Rupert Wainwright, who directed the history teaser, 
and someone that I've never heard about before called Craig Lamont Parks, who was apparently some kind of stand-in or double for Michael Jackson over the years. So there should be some interesting stories to come out of those three guys. I certainly have never heard Rupert in particular um, talk about the history teaser. So this this is going to be really good. Well, uh, I mean, as you said, it's a, it's a pretty interesting lineup of guests. Kingvention, they seem to get quite a few interesting people. Like I recall a couple of years ago, they managed to get Bill, the elusive Bill Bottrell, and he did quite an amazing interview that I suggest a lot of people check out. Yeah, they certainly are very good at, at snagging some of these guests who haven't spoken before. I mean, I'm pretty sure Pez has talked before about on the MJ cast about how he's, he's able to do that. You know, at the MJ cast, we don't have the luxury of being able to fund these people to come on. But uh, Pez certainly, you know, pays for their flights and pays for their hotel experience and all of that for the seminar. So I guess that's maybe how he's able to get some of these names. But also, like, uh, how amazing is it that that a a paying audience is able to go and hear these people speak while they're still alive? Uh, I think it's, it's it's a great thing. Nicholas Pike in particular is somebody that we haven't heard from before either. And and I love his work, his orchestral work on um, on Ghosts. And, and, and I'd love to hear about the back and forth collaboration between himself and Michael on putting that together. It is quite a good guess they've landed there. I know uh, uh, Ryan Wicks, who uh, from Maximum Jackson Forum days, did a, a very short interview with Nicholas Pike, but it was a very informative one. So... Look forward to hearing more stories that, that Pike can tell us, particularly around You Rock My World, because I can't recall him ever having spoken on that. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of um, what you do with JC's Musicology, do you, have you ever used um, the Kingvention interviews for your uh, source material? Just the Bill Betrayal one. Right. I was wondering where that audio came from, actually. I, I thought for a little bit that maybe you'd in- interviewed him independently, but so, all right, it's from Kingvention. Oh, I wish I could interview him in, independently. I mean, his work just beyond Michael Jackson, stuff, the stuff he did with Michael Jackson is amazing. But yeah, it was that stuff was sourced from Kingvention, although ran through AI because I, I think it, it sounded like Bill Bottrell was re- recording in his kitchen or something. It was had a lot of reverb around it. Yeah, <laughs> this is our, our weekly struggle at the MJ cast, this kind of thing. It's the irony when you interview a sound engineer, yet their audio sounds like complete shit. <laughs> it's so true. Although I've got to give a shout out to Matt Forger because out of anyone we've ever interviewed before, he put in just an amazing effort into making sure his room sounded great. There was even a uh, I remember at the start when we did the interview, before we started recording, I kept talking to him about this rattling sound that was going on and he was getting duct tape and he was taping up the arms <laughs> on his chair so they wouldn't rattle and it was really great. So oh, Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Charlie, you, you live in London, obviously. Are you going to think about going to convention this year? I've never been before, um, although that's not a boycott. It just happens that I've never been before. Um, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out. I was planning on going last year, but um, it coincided with my brother's birthday event, so I couldn't. So I will keep an eye on the guest list and then make a decision nearer the time. It looks like they do have on their website at least one more guest to be announced, so you never know. Yeah, and and, uh, if I know anything about how that team works, they're probably going to save a good name right for the end as well. So uh, (laughs) uh, I would be expecting somebody interesting. All right, moving right along to the next news story. 
documentary filmmaker Jin Choen has offered an update on his upcoming documentary, Trial by Media. Uh, this, of course, is a doco that we are waiting on in the fan community in addition to Taj Jackson's rewriting history. Jin's doing a similar thing as well, talking about the allegations, but I think with a little bit more of a focus on uh, the media's treatment of Michael through that time period. This update is from July 11th, 2023, so very recently, um, and he's talked a little bit in this update on his GoFundMe page about filming needing to be halted because more funds are needed from the community or for, from whoever's willing to donate, uh, which... I guess was a, a bit, uh, I wasn't expecting to read that because Jin's been going full steam ahead this this whole time. And then uh, when we got this update that things have sort of halted, I was like, oh no, 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 that's not good. <laughs> we were really looking forward to this, especially coupled with the recent news around Robson and Safechuck. Um, so Jin also talks in the update about there being around 70 hours of interviews that he's collected so far or filmed so far. Uh, he's unable to share any of that evidence of what he has done so far. Although, you know, he said that in the in the um, update that he won't share things, but he already is. Like, <laughs> he has sha- uh, shared lots of photos of these interviews taking place. So I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind that it's being put together. It's probably not the update that folks wanted, but I thought it would be a good chance to sort of remind our listeners that this is not an unusual thing for film production. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, how Taj's thing has taken a while and now Jen's thing is taking a while too. And I think it, it's it's a good thing if we take a step back and remember that if you research pretty, pretty much any film in history, <laughs> it's so common for films to be in production for many, many years, some, sometimes upwards of a decade before they actually get released. And, and a lot of that time is spent way back in the negotiation phase of securing funding and script writing and who's going to produce it and all of that kind of stuff. This is a very, very normal thing, I think. And it'd be it's good if the community just reminds itself of that rather than like I don't go on social media much anymore, but I've heard about people, you know, sort of j- just jumping on folks and, you know, criticizing. And, you know, these things will come. It's just a matter of, of time and waiting for it to be a great product. Well, yeah, I mean, the firstly, the vast majority of video and film projects which are conceived never get made. Almost all of them die without being made. Mm. And the ones that do get made very often take an extremely long time to get made, primarily for funding reasons. Primarily, it is to do with um, finding backers and raising the funds to do what you need to do. Um, that is the thing that stalls many projects, most projects that don't get made. I think that that is, I think that people who are sort of uh, throwing their toys out of the pram about certain projects not being ready are kind of uh, maybe a little bit ignorant to the way that the industry works and that this is actually totally normal. And I would just raise again the example of the A&E network, which was uh, when we went into lockdown in 2020, it was three months away from airing its four-hour documentary about Michael's trial, and it still has not come out. We're now in 2023. The disruption caused to that project by lockdown was irretrievable. They could not uh, finish it. It's still not out. So, it's very normal for things to stall and to take a long time to get going. 
I'm not talking in particular about any projects here, I'm just talking generally about how video production and TV production and so on works. Is This is just totally normal. And Jin is an independent film. I mean, I know Jin. I've had dinner with Jin. I've met him a few times. He's a really good guy and his project sounds really exciting. He's told me a lot about what he plans to do with it and what his vision for it is. And it will be great when it comes out. But this is a very normal speed bump that he's hit. So I wish him well, and I hope the fans get behind him. Yeah, this is really the first I've actually heard of this documentary, and I guess I quite often I just wonder, who are these made for exactly? Because there's no real shortage of uh, documentaries online about how atrociously Michael was treated by the media, and I wonder if it has much appeal outside of the fan community. Um, I think Jin has always been focused, just the same as Taj is focused on, is getting the the film out to a, a much broader audience. He actually Jin actually puts in his trailers um, a little logo type thing that says a Netflix ready film. So right. <laughs> I think he's really trying to pitch this to a streaming service that's going to be able to get it out to the broader audience, which is where I, I think there is a bit of concern around these kind of things because there is a, a like we're going to talk about later, Wade Robson and James Savechuck's claims are very probably going to trial at this point. So even though we as Michael Jackson fans and people that know about his history would think, well, this is a really relevant time for this to come out. So Mm. the community or the broader public can have perspective. Are streaming companies going to be prepared to put something out that is in defense of Michael when there are still very serious claims and allegations of pedophilia? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I wish this documentary, all the luck in the world, anything that can serve as a potential antidote to the nonsense that seems to constantly plague Michael, even in death, it's it's only going to be a good thing, I guess. I just wonder how much appeal these types of documentaries have to, to people who have already made up their mind about Michael Jackson, because I can imagine fans watching it just because it's Michael Jackson, but I can see people that... that don't like him just it having real no real appeal unless it shows up randomly on television and manages to encapsulate people yeah and i think the the positioning of it and the and the production and the marketing of it is really really critical like i know for myself when i watch true crime stuff if i log on to netflix and want to watch a tr- true crime thing i want to watch something where where we don't know if the person did it or not, and I need to find out by watching it to see if they did it or not. Mm. Whereas if something is marketed from the get-go as this guy is innocent, I just wonder how much appeal that will have to people that are barely or not Michael Jackson fans, mm-hmm. like the civilians. I I do think that Jin is taking a much more nuanced approach than that. I don't know how much I can say, but I know that, I know that from my discussions with him, he's not planning on only speaking to people who think that Michael is innocent. Right. I know that I know that from from my conversations with him. I won't spill any secrets, but um interesting. He's yeah, he's definitely looking at it from a a more objective perspective. Wow. Okay, I hadn't heard that. That will be very fascinating. Well, I'm sold then. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's going to be really good. Uh, John, just as a, a way to get to know you a little bit better, because we haven't actually talked on the show much about your history, and of course, we'll get to your uh, work a little bit later, but I'd like to know, like, how long were you, how long have you been a Michael Jackson fan, first of all? Mm-hmm. And just on this note, actually, I'm, I'm really curious about something. Charlie, obviously, we've got to know over the years uh, very well what, what your stance is on the allegations and all of that kind of thing. But, John, we, we haven't had a chance too much to dig back into your own history as a fan. I'm curious about, firstly, when you became a Michael Jackson fan, how young, and then at what point did you have to grapple with these allegations and then how did you make up your mind on them? Well, Michael was always in my life, really. I, Growing up, we didn't really have a lot of money, so most of the music that I consumed... Uh, was my mother's record collection from the 70s and 80s. So despite being a 90s, early 2000s kid, I grew up in uh, kind of a faux vinyl era because that's all I had. And there's uh, some lovely footage of me as I think about a three-year-old dancing to a seven-inch vinyl of of Beat It wearing nothing but my nappy, which is probably not too dissimilar (laughs) to how I act now. But... (laughs) Uh, it wasn't until the, and I think you were the same with this, Jamin, the 30th anniversary celebration. I remember watching that on television and just my mind was absolutely blown. And particularly during that era, there were, you know, only a couple of years later, there was, of course, the living with Michael Jackson controversy. And then around that, there was like a million TV specials, some good, some bad, but they had Michael Jackson footage in there and that's what I lived for whatever the content was I sat through a lot of really crappy nasty documentaries just to see these snippets of stuff back then that was so rare you know this is pre-youtube of course and every now and then you'd get a, a little gem of archive footage so in terms of the court case how did I come to my conclusion I guess I was probably a bit young at the time to really contemplate, like I knew what was happening and the nature of it, and just as something of a blind fan, I didn't believe it. But it wasn't until a couple of years later when the transcripts from those t- from that trial ended up online, and I remember reading through it for the first time, and despite still being young, I was just incredulous at the the case was absolutely ridiculous so and then years after that of course the fbi files from the 93 investigation leaked and there was next to nothing in that so really forever it's just been a it's just been a bewildering part of the michael jackson story for me yeah yeah, I'm just having um, visuals uh, of, of you watching 30th anniversary like me, just wide-eyed being absolutely, wow, this is incredible. I'm a lifelong fan now. And and then I'm um, contrasting that to Charlie, who was probably sitting there rocking back and forth, needing counselling <laughs> at what, what he was watching. But, um, <laughs> I don't think we need to rehash the 30th anniversary roundtable because we got enough hate mail the first time. Yeah, let's not go there again. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's an interesting kind of graduation as a fan, you know, being in, enthralled by it as, as a youngling. And then years later, of course, we see we see all the flaws in it, regrettably. 
But I know, as it is for you and I, Jamin, and for a lot of people, it was that that was a pivotal moment in a lot of people's lives in the the music they they digest. Yeah, and I think um, just just I guess one more note on that. It, it's a very generational thing. So that's that whole invincible era. I mean that the thirtieth anniversary concert that was televised to so many millions of people that did really generate a lot of new fans, but it wasn't necessarily just the. I actually watched the original broadcast the other day on YouTube that had all of the original interlude video uh, edits in mm. there as well, and I remember back. It, it wasn't just the performances that Michael gave that that really wowed me. It was actually all of those video interludes as well that showed his past as a performer, as a humanitarian. You know, I think there was one specifically about him as a dancer and who was who was inspired by. And, and like you just said, there was chock full of little career highlight snippets. And for me, as like a fifteen year old, that was my first exposure to Michael Jackson. And I, yeah. I'm seeing like all of his career highlights in one three-hour concert or whatever it was, it was a really great introduction to, to being a Michael Jackson fan, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's to live through an artist creating their legacy, yes, that's exciting, but there's also a different level of excitement and fandom when that legacy is, so to speak, over because there's so much context to which you can look back at what they achieved, at how to interpret songs and videos. And it, I, I feel like, yes, the the f- people becoming fans today missed out on a lot. Like, they, they'll never be able to grapple the, the magnitude that Michael had on this earth. But they they have a lot more references than we did. They, they have a... a much larger grasp than we did back in the days of us setting our VHSs to record the news or Entertainment Tonight just in case there was a Michael Jackson segment, you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a very positive way to look at it. I mean, it wasn't all a walk in the park, though, I think, for people that became fans of our generation. I remember, I mean, because we became fans in 2001, we had eight years really Mm. before he passed away. And those were eight difficult years. Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, I I don't know about you, but I I became, you know, very quickly known as the Michael Jackson guy at school and, uh, you know, and and, and within my family. And and so (laughs) every day was almost like watching the news. What's he done now? (laughs) You know, you've had the baby dangling. You've had all of that. And it's like, what am I going to, you know, how am I going to explain this to everybody that's going to come up to me in school today saying Michael's done something else that's odd how am i going to explain that like it was a difficult decade absolutely yeah i i, I certainly had the, the those kinds of um concerns growing up as well but it, for me it was always and i don't wish to sound too pretentious on this but for me it was always step back and celebrate the person so at school mm. i'd teach people how to moonwalk and then all of a sudden i was cool and michael jackson was cool and all of that other bullshit kind of faded away yeah, well said. Um, somebody else who does a really great job at bringing Michael Jackson to uh, the younger, newer generation is Hannah Savage, who is a YouTube documentary maker, uh, wonderful person. We've been chatting on text recently, and and she's about to uh, release a new 
uh, documentary. So Hannah's put out some great, great episodes already in the past. She's actually done one on Blood on the Dance Floor. She's done one on Invincible. And she first came to my attention when she uh, put out a double episode on the history of the Casio tracks, which was really great. And Hannah put out a trailer on March 28th for her upcoming one called The Dark Side of Michael Jackson's This Is It. It looks great, really, really well edited. And I I just personally can't wait for it because I think This Is It is still such an interesting topic where there's a lot of things still to uncover. We've had the pleasure of speaking to a few people, of course, that have been involved in This Is It, like Kevin Dorsey and, you know, different people that have talked about, you know, there's much more behind the scenes that went on than we know about, like Michael's original collaborators being let go early in the process to be replaced with other people. And so, um, yeah, I feel like this is going to be a great doco and I, and I can't wait for, for Hannah to release it. Yeah, I just watched the trailer for it before. And, and to be honest, I'm not that well, uh, well educated on the behind the scenes of This Is It. I know a lot of um, uh, sad stuff went on, but I reckon this will... I mean, I'm excited to have all of that information in, in one consumable experience. I, I look forward to it. I haven't actually seen any of, any of um, Hannah's previous stuff. So what does she do? Does she interview people directly or is it like archive footage and then Hannah narrating? How does it work? It's very similar to what John does, actually, um, except visual. So, so Hannah will go back to lots of original source material, whether it's previous interviews, um, and then uh, and footage of Michael and Michael talking himself, and just piece all of that together into into documentaries. But she's really a really good editor. Like it doesn't come across as really amateur <laughs> YouTube type stuff. Like she's obviously got a lot of skill when it comes to editing and she does all her own voiceover work and that kind of thing. So um, I think uh, this will this will really resonate with the community and hopefully get the truth out a little bit more about what happened behind the scenes with that tour. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I think the difficulty she'll run into is that most of the information that's come out about the truth in those rehearsals has not been audiovisual. Some of it came out through Jermaine's book, and some of it, a lot of it came out through the AG trial, but most of the, the, the trial itself was not televised except for the closing arguments, and only tiny snippets of the um, depositions have been released. So it'll be interesting to see how she brings the story to life with the paucity of um, audiovisual material that's available at the moment. Yeah, and of course, um, the emails too uh, from Karen Fay and different people like that, uh, Kenny Ortega. I, I'd imagine that um, they would have to be like just displayed uh, visually, and then she might read them out or portions of them out, that kind of thing. Wonder if uh, Talitha's MJ cast will come into it because that was a great insight into what was going on at that time. Yeah, you're right, and and of course, Kevin Dorsey and um, Travis. I think yeah, we've spoke, we we interviewed Travis together twice <laughs> from memory. So yeah, there is some great source material out there for sure. I'd imagine to do a good job of it, you'd have to dig through like the, the court transcripts too from the from both trials really, but especially the AEG trial. Um, I remember this guy wasn't directly involved in the This Is It tour, but um, the most poignant. Um, deposition, I think that I recall, was from Stuart Finkelstein, who was a doctor on the Dangerous World Tour. 
and I can't remember which you know which who called him to 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 speak, but he just walked through all of Michael's behavior during the dangerous tour and the hotel rooms, and then what he was called to do, and how close Michael came to you know his demise even back then um, because of his um, dependencies. And uh, that really painted an amazing picture for what it probably would have been like at Carrollwood during the This Is It era as well. So um, that a lot of that stuff is online, though. So there are a lot of those depositions are um, are on YouTube or were. I don't know if they're still there. I think not. Not the whole depositions. I think there were bits of the depositions that came out. But not the whole things. Uh, so, for example, I don't believe the footage of Randy Phillips being properly interrogated about the emails where he described slapping Michael. I don't think that footage was ever out there. Even though we know it exists, we know it happened. I don't think the footage was ever released. Karen Fay's deposition was never released. There's so much stuff that happened in that case, both in the courtroom and in the depositions before the, the trial itself, which unfortunately remains under lock and key. There are some unofficial transcripts out there. I think it was Taj Malik. Do you remember Taj Malik? I think yeah, um, yeah. she went to court and produced her own transcripts, but I don't think the official transcript, because they're very expensive, I don't think the official transcripts were ever released out into the public domain. I know that it's possible to buy those. Like you just said, it's quite expensive. But do you know if it's possible to buy the original video material, like the deposition material? Or can you only ever get transcripts if you're a journalist? So, um, as I understand it, the you don't have to buy the depositions. You can just go to the courthouse and get them. There may be a, an admin fee. However... Um, you can only get the portions of the depositions which were played in court. So if a witness did not come to court, but their deposition was played in lieu of testimony, then in theory, you'd be able to get that witness's entire deposition. However, if a witness did come to court, which is what happened with Karen Fay, so Karen Fay was deposed, but she then came to court and testified. So unless somebody played a portion of her deposition to her in court to impeach her, then her deposition would not have been placed on the record. So mm. I believe with Karen Fay, for example, that's why none of her deposition has ever been placed into the public domain, because it wasn't played in court. And there were lots of witnesses who attended and gave live evidence, which meant that their depositions were never released. Now, the lawyers would have those depositions, but I don't know what kind of data protection regulations there would be. I'm not, I'm not American and I'm not an expert. I'm pretty good on UK data protection, but America is a, another world really. So yeah. I don't know what the restrictions would be on the lawyers in terms of releasing those tapes. Well, Hannah's certainly got her work cut out for her. Can't wait to see it. I'm I'm really curious about how the timeline gets laid out, like all of those visits to Carrollwood by the, you know, AEG staff like Randy Phillips in the days preceding his death. And then of course there's that mysterious 
night, I think, where they went around to visit him and the security footage from the house happens to be missing from that one night and all of that. Like if, if all of that is stacked up against each other, it's going to be a really fascinating watch. So good luck, Hannah. Let's uh, move along to our next news story, which is some good news, bit of a change of gears. Paul Dwyer has launched his podcast, Humanitarian, The Real Michael Jackson. Paul will be known to the MJ cast community because he's been on before. Q, I think, interviewed Paul when his book came out, um, which has the same title. And uh, this this podcast is is already out. It's got a few episodes that have come out so far. Uh, the intro, he, he really launched it with a bang because the intro uh, episode, oh, sorry, there's an introduction episode, then there's three interview episodes so far. But his first proper interview episode came out on June 25th uh, and was an interview with Mike son, Prince Jackson, which is pretty phenomenal. And his subsequent two episodes are with um, people that Michael Jackson helped when they were much younger and um, they had different illnesses that, you know, that Michael recognized and then helped them uh, in visits to Neverland and different things. So one of them is called Natasha Kirker. And the second interview is with somebody called Charles White. And I'm guessing there's many, many more to come. They're very touching stories of Michael's generosity and how he got involved in young people's lives and and really helped them through very, very difficult times. Uh, The video versions are also available um, on YouTube. And I know that creating a podcast and interview series of audio is is a is a monumental job just in itself to be able so to be able to do video versions of those episodes and then also put them out on YouTube is really something so congratulations to Paul um, on how well it's been doing so far the stories are very very valuable and it's great that there's one podcast sort of capturing all of those stories for reference for anybody who wants to learn about Michael's humanitarian efforts yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, it's an area that is very, maybe I've just been looking in the wrong places, but I think it's an area that's only ever vaguely documented Michael's humanitarian efforts. It's often montages of him showing up to hospitals with novelty-sized checks and people saying what a wonderful person he was, but to be able to hear specific stories of how he changed people's lives, I, I look forward to listening to a few episodes, certainly. And like you said, to land Prince Jackson as the first guest, that's that's uh, that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Prince um, kicked it all off, really, by talking about the work he's doing with Heal LA and how he's continuing on his father's legacy. And so it's really touching to hear. I mean, I think Michael, you know, in his own words, has talked a lot about helping people and how lucky he was as a musician and entertainer to be able to get to such a level of success where he could visit a lot of sick children and and help them so it's it's a good example of somebody using their their fame or their power for for good i was at havenhurst last year with paul i met paul we were both volunteering for heal la and uh ddj foundation at the kids day that they organize every year so they do the halloween party where people buy tickets and that raises funds for the charities. And then um, after the parties, they have a kid's day where all of the infrastructure, the Halloween stuff remains in place at the property. And all the kids come in that have benefited from those charities over the past year. And they're given the free reign of the property. They have funfair games that they can play and win cuddly toys and a Halloween maze where people jump out and scare them and so on and so forth. 
I was privy to, I was witness to a conversation between Paul and Prince, where Prince was telling him how much he loved Paul's book. I think it's just called Humanitarian, isn't it? Michael Jackson, Humanitarian. And uh, he was just rhapsodizing about it, saying how he had the book, he bought the book, and he absolutely loved it, and he was so pleased to meet Paul. And it was a really great, really nice moment. So um, I haven't listened to the podcast yet, but I will get around to it soon. Last news story from me before I hand over to you, Charlie, to handle a few of the legal-related ones. Uh, John Branker a state executor has apparently confirmed via his TikTok, which I don't have TikTok, so I never see any of these updates and I could not care less, to be honest, about TikTok. But anyway, he has said that the Thriller 40 documentary is still coming this year. So I guess that's (laughs) going to be Thriller 41 um, that he'll title it. I'm not sure. But if we go back a little bit as well to May, so early May, I think it was May 4th, MJ Vibe, reported on an official announcement from the MJ Online team. And I'll just read that announcement so because it's pretty relevant still, and I don't think we did in our last episode. But it said, We understand you are all excited to see the Thriller 40 documentary. While it was shown as a one-time only in-production preview in select cities around the globe on the anniversary of the album release, I would remind you that there has not been an official release date given or distribution partner announced. So to claim the estate does not want to or is not able to release Thriller 40 is a flat out false accusation. I can assure that we have been told there will be a release, but the date is not yet being announced. When it is time, an official announcement will be shared with fans and the media, and of course, also posted to Michael's social media channels. Nelson George, the film's director, uh, also said on the Karen Hunter show on YouTube uh, that the documentary was being delayed for technical reasons. I'm not sure what that means. And I guess, yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe it'll come this year. Maybe it won't. From those of you who have seen it, so I I know I've spoken to a number of people that were in the theaters watching this. So I think, Charlie, you saw it. Carter, our our show producer, saw it. Damien Shield saw it. A bunch of people saw it. John, did you see it? No, I didn't. A lot of people who saw it said that it was pretty problematic <laughs> in the state that it was in. Yeah. Um, so, who knows if it will come out. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, you're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I, I could go on and on about the ineptitude of the estate, but I've got a plane to catch at lunchtime, so it's probably best I don't... <laughs> go too hard on them but i mean we'll be here all day (laughs) it's just i'm not surprised by this and i'm not disappointed because it's not surprising but the fact that it's not a surprise is disappointing like i just i i I don't i don't get it i don't understand how you can be the gatekeepers to one of the most significant musical legacies of all time but just I mean, even in that statement you read, Jamin, you can just hear the contempt they seem to have for fans. Yeah, like I said, I, w- I, won't, I won't go on and on about it. It is perplexing. I was thinking about it this morning myself. I was thinking, okay, let's rewind back over the past four years. What what have we received exactly since the Escape album? And, and I started thinking of it because of your episode, John, actually, where in portions of it you played the quote-unquote contemporised versions 
of some of Michael's unreleased music from the Bad Era that came out on the Escape album. And I was thinking that was really the last major effort they put into anything at all. Mm. And what have we had since then? And we know that there are countless hours of footage of Michael doing all kinds of things, whether it be performing or, you know, meeting sick kids and helping them or whatever, rare photographs, just all kinds of stuff. And 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 we go week to week with what? Like what do they ever release to demonstrate Michael's legacy? Doesn't even have to be stuff we haven't seen before. It could be you know, um, 4K versions of not, not even performance footage, but just Michael doing something random. Hey, here's footage of Michael doing this thing in whatever year. How amazing is that? Kind of like a bit of a history bent on what he was doing. There's nothing like that. There's nothing to keep us longtime fans really engaged other than Michael's original art, which is incredible and, and don't get me wrong, but they, they don't do much to kind of spruik him at all. <laughs> And it, it is very, very disappointing. Well, this is what happens when lawyers are in charge of creative decisions. I mean, they try to be principled. They try. They say nonsense like, "Oh, well, you know, we're not we're not releasing things that aren't perfect because Michael didn't release things that that weren't perfect." It's like, well, I know that's not true. I've listened to Invincible. I mean, <laughs> it's that they just have such mixed standards for which for which they seem to predicate their releases on. Yeah. And now for this to be delayed, I mean, any the footage that fans want to actually see in the Thriller documentary, that shit has already leaked online. Like, any level of excitement to watch it end-to-end is, is completely gone for me. Yeah, I, I agree completely. The uh, I still think it was an absolutely insane decision for them to do these previews because... From the second they announced that, we knew that there were going to be fans in the audience with their phones bootlegging the bits of the documentary, mm. and they did. Mm. And it was only a matter of like two hours after the, the screenings before the, you know, victory era footage was already out, uh, bootleg quality. But, I mean, all you have to do is follow Brad Sundberg's story to know that this stuff happens all the time. Mm. You can't keep anything under lock and key anymore with previews or, you know, seminars. It just, you can't. So, it, you're right. It's, it's what, what are we now looking forward to with the documentary? That rare footage has already been out. Exactly. And even to screen a rough cut of a documentary, which is supposed to be a celebration of the biggest album of all time, it's just, it's shoddy work over and over again. Like Bruce Wadeen used to say, the, the quality goes in before the name goes on. Well, not anymore. Well, also, when they first announced those screenings, it definitely did not say work in progress. Mm. When, the, screen, when the, the tickets first became available, that was added at a later date. So it sort of suggested that they were expecting it to be finished and then something went wrong. The deadline was not hit or something. And there were just little... Like really unbelievably sort of amateurish problems in it. So, for example, there were moments where the music videos were in sub YouTube quality. They were just terrible. I remember this footage in there from the um, "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough" video, and it was it looked like Lego. It was so pixelated. It was unbelievable. And you're just going, "What? How is how is that possible?" I mean, you're working with the estate. 
why would that version of the video ever have been in your rough cut? Why would you not just be using the proper footage? It's just ineptitude, you know, and uh, the sound levels were all wrong. It definitely felt like something that was supposed to have been finished and a deadline was missed. But I don't, what I don't really understand is why it's taken another eight months to fix it. Because it sounds like it took less than eight months to make the actual thing. Yeah. So God knows what's going on. I wonder whether they are actually harking back to a point you made earlier, Jamin. I wonder whether what is actually going on is they're struggling to find somebody that's prepared to screen it because it is pro Michael Jackson in the current climate. Um, I have suspicions of that also because remember we heard from Jay Randy Trabarelli before Christmas saying that there was going to be a victory tour documentary. He'd already filmed his parts for it. Mm. Um, and that and that was meant to come out very early this year. Uh, it, of course, never came out. So maybe there is a bit of a widespread problem with getting pro Michael Jackson stuff out the gate. Um, I mean, there always was, wasn't there? That's not just a new thing, but um, especially since- leaving Neverland, I could imagine it would be harder than ever before. Um, I was kind of shocked that they even released that statement in early May because I suspected what they had done is decided to just not put it out. I, I thought they'd just given up. Like, mm. look, this is where we got it up to. We're balking on this project now. We'll put it out in its state for some fans to see if they want to. Otherwise, we're walking away from it. So I'm actually incredibly surprised they're still uh, publicly committing to putting it out. Well, don't be surprised. Like I said, <laughs> don't be surprised by anything these people do or don't do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, I'm going to hand over to you now, Mr. Thompson, because we have three legal related news stories that I'm hoping you can walk us through, starting with Catherine Jackson's response to the estate over the quote unquote deal saga. So on the last news episode that we did, we covered some news reports which had appeared in the press about an alleged proposal by the Michael Jackson estate to sell a share of Michael Jackson's publishing catalog for approximately a billion dollars. The the rumor in the press was that they were planning to sell around 50% of Michael Jackson's publishing to Sony for something in the region of a billion dollars. And Catherine Jackson, as the beneficiary of the estate, was taking legal action to try to stop the estate from doing it. Um, however, her reasons for attempting to block the project were secret. They had been filed under seal on grounds that there was personal information about the family in the documents, which would be embarrassing if it was placed into the public domain. Since we reported that, the court actually gave the go-ahead to the estate to move forward with the deal. However, Catherine Jackson's legal team then filed an appeal. The estate has complained about uh, Catherine Jackson's lawyers filing this attempt to appeal, and they're basically saying the amount of time that it will take for her to appeal against the court's decision will be so long that the deal will no longer be on the table. This was back in May that they were saying this. If you if you allow this, then the deal will no longer be on the table. And Catherine Jackson replied through her lawyers saying that the estate has no evidence of this. They said, 
what they called a parade of horribles. They said that the executors had told the court about a parade of horribles that would occur if she was allowed to appeal, but it was all speculation. Now, in fact, it may be that the estate believed it had some inkling about the impending Wade Robson decision, and maybe that does mean that because of the delay, the offer may no longer be on the table, or it may be worth less now, I don't know. Uh, it may, in fact, be that the estate was correct, that there was a, a sell-by date on this um, proposed deal, and that the appeal, by hampering the deal, has killed it or undermined it. So I guess we'll have to wait and see whether that is the case. The last we heard, Catherine was appealing, and the estate was trying to stop her from appealing. The next legal update is in the case of the estate versus Jeffrey Phillips, who is the former alleged fiancé of um, LaToya Jackson. In her reality show, they were supposedly going to get married. So I'll leave it up to you. Will you believe that? <laughs> the estate set up a sting <laughs> some time ago where they suspected that Jeff was in possession of some belongings of Michael Jackson's which were taken from his home after he died. They set up a sort of an undercover operation to try to goad him into selling some of this material, I believe, and then sort of in a Scooby-Doo way jumped out and pulled the mask off and said, gotcha. They're now suing him to compel him to hand over the material, which they say is rightfully the uh, property of the estate. He has not handed the material over, is saying that if Catherine Jackson tells him to hand the material over, then he'll hand it over. The estate is suing him. This is an interesting one, actually. So he's he is lobbying the court, saying, I want to be able to call Catherine Jackson as a witness. And the estate has been responding, saying, this is outrageous. Catherine Jackson is a very elderly woman. She would not be able to participate in legal proceedings of this nature. At the same time, Catherine Jackson is, through her lawyers, filing quite aggressive legal complaints against the estate. And yet she's not inserting herself into Jeffrey's case. So who knows what's going on with Catherine and, and what state she is in and whether she is or is not competent to participate in legal proceedings. The latest news is that Jeff is planning to call his former fiance, if you believe that, Latoya, to the stand uh, and have her questioned in court. I don't quite know what this is all about, to be honest. I don't know why he doesn't just give the stuff back, but there you go. Well, a bit, bit of a storm in a teacup, isn't it? Well, or or there could be something of real value on these hard drives that Jeffrey and Latoya don't want the estate executors to have. Over the years, there's definitely been rumours that these hard drives contain some of Michael's last recording work. Um, for example, his vocals from the Will I Am sessions. I think there is a quote by Will I Am himself saying that one of the reasons that the music he had that it, it couldn't come out was because he had the music and Michael always kept his vocals. And um, I never knew what to make of that because there were contradictory interviews where he also said he had sort of like mixed down versions of some of the songs on his iTunes library and different things. Mm. Um, but but really, I mean that could that could be one of the reasons. If there's some if there's some of Michael's last work on there, we know that Latoya and some of the other siblings just really do not trust the executors at all. Uh, so it, it 
would make sense to me that they were trying at all costs to keep their hands off these these hard drives. But why? What would be the point of that? Because they can't release the music independently because the estate owns Michael's likeness and so on. They own the rights to his name. So it's of no value to LaToya or Jeffrey, even if that is what they've got. Yeah, I know. It, so it still is perplexing. It, it might more just be, like, I understand that they wouldn't be able to do anything with it, but it might just be the simple fact that they don't want the estate to do anything with it. Like they saw what happened with the Castillo tracks. They saw, you know, who knows what they think about all the other crazy remixes and stuff that come out. I don't really know. All I know is that we've over the years we've had declarations from various siblings demanding that John Branker step down as a co-executor. We've had Catherine Jackson uh, tell Piers Morgan that John Branker and John McLean are not the estate. They are just lawyers and that she is the estate. There, there obviously is a lot of animosity between the different groups. So it makes sense to me that LaToya would want to hold these back um, for any possible use. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see, I guess, as this unfolds. What we probably will find out if this case sort of proceeds to have, you know, to be a trial is we'll probably find out the contents of the hard drives at some point, which is exciting to me too. Well, it's not... It's not just hard drives, there's loads of stuff. So I don't know if you remember Marco, was his name Boletta? Marco Boletta? Yeah, Marco Boletta, yeah. Marco Boletta, who was a very, very militantly anti-Sony and anti-estate Michael Jackson fan, who for years was very active in the fan community on social media. He went to the court and obtained images of all of the material or certainly a large amount of the material which Jeffrey has and is allegedly not supposed to have. Among them, interestingly, is a photograph of the front page of what is titled Michael Jackson's estate planning document. Mm. So it appears that there was some kind of plan drawn up by Michael for how his estate should be run after he had passed away, and that document is among the material which is in Jeffrey's possession or was in Jeffrey's possession. I don't know who has got it at the moment, whether he's still got it or is being held somewhere by the court or something. But um, yeah, that would be an interesting document to see in full if we can at some point. That would, especially if... um, I wonder if Peter Lopez's name is connected to that document in any way. Uh, He was one of Michael's principal lawyers before he died and then Peter obviously famously and mysteriously died himself in the year after Michael's own death. Yeah, I remember I remember when the this is it announcement was supposed to happen. So it was supposed to happen about a week or two before it actually did happen. Everything was set ready for it to happen and then it didn't and that was because Michael didn't get on the plane. Everything was ready. The you know the press releases were ready to go. Sony completely rebranded its website in anticipation of the announcement being made, and then it all got called off because Michael didn't get on the plane. And I remember hearing at that time that Michael had actually fired Peter Lopez. In theory, I think the theory was that he had fired Peter Lopez because Lopez was the attorney that had been representing him in all the negotiations with AEG and was his point of contact. So he had got cold feet about the whole this is it thing and was trying to pull out of it. And so he fired Lopez so that AEG couldn't reach him. Uh, of course, he had actually signed the uh, the contract already. So 
that wasn't going to wash. And then a week or two later, he did get on the plane and the announcement happened as it was supposed to have done. So I don't know if Peter Lopez was still working for Michael at the time that he passed away. Right. But it's certainly soon before he passed away, he was working for him. And it's very conceivable that he would be mentioned in that estate planning document. All right, Charlie, can you take us into the final legal update of the episode? So the news is that the Wade Robson allegations against Michael's companies may be going to a civil trial. It's really hard to explain what that means without going right back to the beginning. So I'm just going to try and go back to the beginning and recap in as succinct a way as I can. Wade Robson, uh, a couple of years after Michael died, filed what is called a creditor's claim with Michael Jackson's estate. And he did that under seal, which is uh, rather at odds with his statements in uh, Leaving Neverland, for example, where he says that the reason he made the allegations against Michael and is suing is because he wants to be a voice for victims. Not the best way to be a voice for victims if you file your case under seal and try to elicit a secret under the table payment. But he filed a creditor's claim with Michael Jackson's estate, which basically said, I was molested, give me some money in secret. They refused to pay up. And one of the reasons was a legal technicality, which was he had two years creditor, one year or two years, I think creditors have in America to file their creditors claim after somebody has died. And if you don't do it within that time period, then you uh, have missed the boat. Unfortunately, that's the end of that. And you can't claim your money. Now, there are exemptions, and you can get around this time limit if you have a good argument. So Wade Robson went to court and said, I didn't know that Michael Jackson had an estate with whom I could lodge a creditor's claim, and I only just found this out. Uh, And it was a great surprise and a shock to me to discover that there was an entity called the Michael Jackson estate, which I could sue for the molestation, which I've just remembered I experienced. So he said that in a sworn statement under oath on penalty of perjury. The estate did something which is quite unorthodox, which is that they, as the respondents in the lawsuit, said, hello, judge, can we please have a summary judgment? Now, a summary judgment is where you dispense with the need for a jury and you allow a judge to make the decision instead. And it's very unorthodox for the respondents in a case to do that to request a summary judgment. Because you're dispensing with the need for a jury and you're leaving everything in the hands of the judge, to be as fair as possible to the plaintiff, the law says that the judge, in handling the case, on every issue where the judge finds that a rational trier of fact, so a rational juror, could believe the plaintiff, in every instance where a rational juror could find in favour of the plaintiff, the judge must presume in favour of the plaintiff. So, very unorthodox for the respondents in a case to uh, pursue a summary judgment. That's what the estate did. They pursued a summary judgment. And the reason they did that is because Wade Robson's argument for why he should not be subject to the time limit was what might be referred to in legal circles as a massive load of bollocks. (laughs) So he had, in fact, been negotiating with the Michael Jackson estate and working with the Michael Jackson estate since months after Michael Jackson died. So in 2009, 
he attended the red carpet premiere of the Michael Jackson Estates documentary, This Is It. He also contributed to the Michael Jackson Estates official tribute book called The Opus. He then entered into negotiations with the Michael Jackson Estate to work on the Estates Cirque du Soleil Michael Jackson tribute show. So there were emails back and forth between Wade and other parties saying, hello, Wade, the Michael Jackson estate has been in touch. They want to meet with you. And then he went to meet with them and had negotiations with them. He actually came right down to the point where he was almost certainly going to get the job directing or choreographing the Cirque du Soleil tribute show. And then he ghosted the estate that he claims he didn't know existed. Instead, went to work on a movie. He went to, he took a, a movie deal instead. That movie deal went tits up sometime later. He then came back to the estate and wrote the famous email that we've all seen where he says, uh, hello, I, Michael loved me and I loved Michael. Nobody should be directing this show except for me. It's written in the stars. It's my destiny. I know that Michael would want me to do this because we had such a great friendship. Please hire me back onto the project. And the estate basically said, piss off because you ghosted us. So how do we know you're not going to ghost us again? So they hired somebody else to do the job. And Wade Robson, uh, a short period later, realized that he'd been molested and started trying to sell uh, a tell-all memoir alleging molestation to a number of major publishing houses. So when the judge looked at all of this evidence, he decided there is no way that a rational trier of fact could believe that Wade Robson did not know that Michael Jackson had an estate because this is blatant perjury and he clearly did know there was an estate because he was meeting, corresponding and negotiating with the estate. So that was the end of that. That presented Wade Robson with a problem because how does he sue now that it's been determined that he can't sue because he's out of time? So the legal solution to that was... Why don't we go after somebody that's not dead or an entity that is not dead, an entity that was alive at the time and is still alive, an entity like MJJ Productions and various other companies which were affiliated with Michael. So we go back to court and our argument is Michael Jackson worked for these companies which still exist, existed at the time and still exist. And we say you, MJJ Productions, should have stopped your employee from molesting me. Therefore, I am suing you. And actually went a bit further than that and did allege in the court documents that MJJ Productions and various other Michael Jackson companies were just a front for a gigantic international child trafficking ring. I think described it as one of the most sophisticated child trafficking rings in history or something to that effect. So the court came back and said, nice try. However, if you look at the company structure, the sole director and boss of all of these companies was Michael Jackson. So what you're actually arguing is that Michael Jackson had a duty to intervene to stop Michael Jackson from molesting you. That doesn't make sense. So your case is being thrown out of court. Wade Robson appealed. And what has just happened, that brings us to where we are now, which is that the Court of Appeal has overturned the lower court's decision and has said, actually, we think it is a triable issue 
whether these companies should have stopped Michael Jackson from molesting you. So the important things to understand are these. Michael Jackson is not on trial. The companies are on trial. However, in order to obtain money from the companies through this civil suit, Wade will have to demonstrate that he could have been molested and that the companies could have stopped it. And I say could have for an important reason, which is that this is a civil court case, which means there is no burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a huge problem. So in civil court, there is no burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden of proof is referred to as a preponderance of the evidence, or the other way of saying it is more likely than not. So the jury, if the jury thinks it is more likely than not, then they find in favor of plaintiff. Now, what that means in practice is if the juror is 50.001% convinced, they have to find in favor of the plaintiff. So if the jury believes 50% that Wade Robson could have been molested, they find in Wade Robson's favor. If they then find that it's 50% possible that the company could have stopped that, then Wade Robson wins and he gets the money. That's the way this will go if it goes to a civil court trial. He does not have to prove he was molested. He has to prove that he might have been molested. He could have been molested. The jury has to be persuaded that it's possible more than 50.01%. A coin toss, effectively, is outrageous, but that is the burden of proof in the UK and America in civil court. The burden of proof is a coin toss. It's You have to be 50.01% sure to find in favour of plaintiff. So there are three things which could happen which could preclude this from going to a trial. Number one is... At the moment, this is a written judgment. There are oral arguments scheduled in a couple of weeks. It's possible, but unlikely, that when they go to court to make the oral arguments over the merits of the written judgment, the judges could overturn it. However, it's extremely rare that judges will overturn their written judgments based on the oral arguments. The next thing that could happen is if they lose the oral arguments... The estate, I'm saying the estate, I mean the companies, it's all the same thing, basically. It's, it's just legal technicalities. I mean, if you sue Michael Jackson when he's dead, you're suing the estate. If you sue Michael Jackson companies when he's dead, who runs them? The estate. So it's the same thing. It's just all legal bullshit. So the second thing the estate could do, if they lose the oral arguments, they could take the case to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court might overturn this decision. And if the Supreme Court overturns it, that is the end, because the su there's no way you can go beyond the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court refuses to even hear 95% of the cases that get referred to it. And of course, of the 5% which it accepts, only a certain number get upheld. So oral arguments are a slim shot. Supreme Court, also a slim shot. The only other way to stop this from going to trial will be to settle if they lose at the Supreme Court. And there is a real debate to be had if you're, if you are the estate. There's an internal debate to be had over the merits of settling. Because firstly, the burden of proof in civil court is bullshit, is rubbish. So if you hold this trial in Hollywood, the sort of right on liberal capital of America and the heart of the Me Too movement, what are the chances of you finding a jury that is going to be willing to side against an alleged victim 
of abuse. I mean, you know, you it's a coin toss anyway, but after leaving Neverland in particular, the, the jury pool has been hopelessly prejudiced. So the burden of proof is a problem. It's very possible that the estate could lose with such a low burden of proof. Also, if you go to trial, you're almost guaranteed to have Dan Reed sat in the corner with his camera crew filming everything. And if that is allowed to happen, then even if the estate wins, ultimately it loses. Because what Dan Reed will do with that footage will be devastating. Because he will just do what he did with Leaving Neverland and edit it in such a way that it's extremely misleading and it makes Michael look guilty as sin. Yeah. So if you are the estate then you have a vested interest in stopping that trial from happening. Of course, it doesn't stop the, you know, there's, there are other things to consider. So you could settle to stop Dan Reed from filming the trial, but he can then just go and interview all the witnesses that would have been at the trial anyway. So still, you're not definitely negating that problem. So yeah, I mean, so that's where we are. They've, Robson has won on appeal. Generally speaking, that means that the same will happen with Safe Chuck because the cases are essentially connected. Yeah. So you've got to assume that the same thing is going to happen with Safe Chuck shortly. And then they will probably share a trial if it goes to trial. Um, so yeah, you've got oral arguments, then you've got Supreme Court, and then you've got a choice between trial and settle. And I am personally on the fence as to if I was the estate, what would be the best option for me there? I, I think either I think it's a lose-lose, to be honest. But one is going to be a worse loss than the other. Yeah. And that's a cost-benefit analysis that they're going to have to do for themselves. I suppose um, the problem with the settlement is that Wade then and, and James get what they always wanted, which is money. But even if they get that money, do you think that a settlement in the public opinion of Michael Jackson, the mind share of Michael Jackson, would that be a damning outcome that would be a once for all thing where it's like, yep, see, he was guilty. That's another settlement. I, don't, I mean, if I was the estate, then my settlement negotiations would have red lines and one of the red lines would be that the document much like in the chandler case makes explicit that there is no admission of any wrongdoing now they might not be prepared to settle for that who knows but that if if i was the estate entering into a settlement negotiation that would definitely be one of my red lines another red line would likely be that they would have to stop talking about the allegations publicly which would preclude them from participating in any future documentaries with reed or anybody else again is that something they would agree to who knows i mean they're in a strong position because the burden of proof is shit in civil court there is no burden of proof effectively it is a coin toss it is a, it is a coin toss so you might as well take your shot so who knows i mean i think I think that the best outcomes for the estate are either that they win on oral arguments, which is extremely unlikely, or that they take it to the Supreme Court and win in the Supreme Court, which is probably more likely than winning on oral arguments, but still unlikely. I think anything other than either of those two outcomes for the estate is bad news. And just lastly, if it did go to trial, who would you expect would be some of the people that would be called as witnesses. Um, some of the people that you'd assume would be uh, are already dead. Like the the MJJ production staff, I think Bob Jones is dead. Um, you've got Norma Stakos 
who's been variously described over the years as executive vice president of MJJ, Jackson's personal assistant. She was also called his chief of staff at one point. So I don't even know if she's around anymore. Like yeah, all she's of these, alive. she's alive. So yeah. I mean, how many? Who would you expect would be called as witnesses? Well, we know who has been deposed. So lots of people have been deposed. Various former employees have been deposed, including, for example, the chauffeur. I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head and it's gone. Gary, Gary Hearn. He's been deposed. Um, Jolie Levine has been deposed. Uh, her son has been deposed. But most of these people gave the accusers nothing. They, you know, for example, Jolie, the prosecution in 2005 in the trial filed an 1108 motion. So 1108 is prior bad acts evidence. So they basically said, we want to bring in evidence of prior molestation against other people. And they wrote a long motion, which was then leaked to the press as all of the prosecution's motions were, despite being filed under seal at the judge's instruction. And in that motion, they suggested that Jolie was anti-Michael Jackson and that she had called him a paedophile. So Wade's lawyers uh, harassed her and her son to be deposed, which they eventually they did. And um, once she was deposed, she said, I never said Michael Jackson was a paedophile and I don't believe he's a paedophile and I resent the implication. <laughs> she basically said, the police came and lied to me and knocked on my door and harassed me and my son. Eventually, I sat down and spoke to them. They then sold some sort of story to the press, the officers that I spoke to, where they put words in my mouth, which I'd never said. And then she ended up in a prosecution motion. So the depositions have largely not gone the way of uh, of Wade and his lawyer. I mean, for example, they've been trying to harass Jordan Chandler, or they have been harassing Jordan Chandler and his family for years now, trying to force them to speak to them. And um, there was a, a hearing a couple of years ago during the sort of lockdown period where the lawyer for um, Lily, Jordan's sister, was on the line, appearing in court by telephone. I believe uh, Dan Reed was there with his camera filming and um, basically said, there's absolutely no evidence that my brother was molested. And so I have no useful information to give to you. So it has been a series of exploding cigars, sort of, for um, Wade and his lawyers. But they will probably call on the old, what were they called? The Neverland Five. They'll probably call Adrian. Um, for example, I'm sure they'll call her. I mean, she'll show up to the opening of a crisp packet if you give her the opportunity. Yeah, it she seems can... about time that she gets wheeled out again. Yeah. To quote Tom Mesereau, she never met a camera she didn't love. So <laughs> she'll certainly show up. They might be able to uh, get Blanca Francia to show up if she can remember which version of the story to tell on that day. I mean, the thing is, none of these people are credible, right? None of them are credible. And in a criminal trial in 2005, where the burden of proof is a, an acceptable burden of proof, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they did not pass the threshold. However, in a case in a civil court where the burden of proof is a coin toss and you have one person after another, after another, after another, even if they all have credibility issues, it's very possible that a jury would say, well, they're all a bit ropey, but there's quite a lot of them. Am I 50.1% sure? Yeah, I am. Right. So it's, it, 
this is the problem that the estate faces. It's the it's the the low burden of proof in civil court. I mean, no, none of us in our lives, if if anybody we knew was accused of something, none of us would accept such a pitiful burden of proof. You know, if this was your brother that was on trial or your dad or your husband or whoever it was, none of us would accept this. It's ludicrous. And most mm. people actually do not understand that this burden of proof exists. They assume that all courts have a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. I didn't know until I became a journalist and I had to study public affairs and take exams. I didn't know until then that civil court had a 50% burden of proof. I had no idea. Most people don't know. And that's another problem. So you've got the estate is facing a double whammy. Problem number one is in court, it has to deal with an extremely low burden of proof. And problem number two is if they lose, they have a general public that thinks that the case has been won beyond a reasonable doubt. So it really is a bad, is, is bad news for the estate. There's no doubt about it. So you've got oral arguments or the Supreme Court. Those will be the only two salvations for the estate. If it goes to the Supreme Court and they don't prevail, then it's a shit sandwich and it's just how much shit and how much bread. So, yeah, that's that's where we are at the moment. Um, well, firstly, Charles, that was a, a fantastic surmise of all the fuckery that's gone on and what seems to be impending. I mean, just personally, I hope the estate doesn't settle. I think that would be worse in public perception than, you know, a, a guilty outcome. It's, it's just amazing to me that they keep trying trying to do this with this the history that you just outlined being so uncredible. You know, it's amazing to me that people are willing to watch a four-and-a-bit-hour documentary believing Wade Robson and, and that other fella, but the, uh, the the credibility of what they're, they're stating is just absolutely demolished with you know, 10 minutes of research, as you've just demonstrated. So it really does surprise me that they're still trying to, to push this. But with the nuances of the, the courts in the United States, it's, I guess they see that there's a potential win there. Sad. Yeah, super sad. But thank you, Charlie, for uh, that amazing update. That was incredible. Um, we really appreciate you being able to do that, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. And uh, for our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with that unfolding case, then you can, of course, tune into the MJ cast. But also you can follow MJ Innocent on Twitter. I'm not sure if they're on other social media uh, platforms, but definitely on Twitter, uh, Shawnee and Annika. Uh, do a really great job of keeping everybody up to date with what's going on with the case. And of course, um, the and justice for some account as well on Twitter is really good for the, for that purpose. So um, yeah, if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with the case, those are probably your best outlets. There are others also. And we might move on from that topic to our final discussion topic uh, of the episode, which is John Cameron's JC's Musicology latest episode, which has come out a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it is all about Michael Jackson during the bad era. The episode is titled Michael Jackson 1983 to 1988, uh, and I have had the pleasure of listening to the entire thing. I, I definitely think it's it's John. It's 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 in my opinion your your best work yet. It is oh, absolutely incredible. Two hours, just uh, just over two hours long. I think it's about two hours and fifteen minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I, I listened to half of it yesterday during the day. And then I listened to the whole thing again when I woke up last night at 1am. So <laughs> um, it's very, very fresh in my mind. But again, I've, I've, I mean, I've said this to you before and I've said it on the show before, but the thing that I, I think sets apart your work from anything else that exists is the fact that you're able to like a tapestry, really, weave together interviews with Michael, interviews about Michael, and not only just the music from the sessions, but elements of the multitracks. So I <laughs> I have a very, um, like a physical reaction to, to when this happens in your episodes, but the hair on my arms kind of stands up where you might be talking about a certain thing. You might be talking about a vocal or a snare drum or something like that. And then you bring up that in the mix and fade everything else out. And then you'll bring something else in, in the mix and talk specifically about that. But this is, this is something you can't get from any other Michael Jackson podcast or YouTube documentary or anything else like that. It is an absolute masterclass in learning how Michael and his critical collaborators put together the really specific aspects of the music. You go into detail about songs that never made the album. You go into detail about the reasons he was Michael was making choices with the song selection, um, with his themes in the music, the music itself, the technology in the music. It's amazing. It's an outstanding piece of work. So congratulations on, on being able to finally release it after so many years of work. Thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. Tapestry is, is really the, a, a great way of describing it. I, uh, I've moved away from thinking of these podcasts as documentaries and more thinking about mega mixes because that, that seems to be what they, they more so are, especially now. Tapestry, a good example of that is like with Liberian Girl. Mm. So there were, I, I'll give a bit of history of the, the episode if you don't mind. I first of started course. writing it back in early 2020. So that's quite some time ago now. And finished the script later that year. And then, of course, John Barnes passed away. Then shortly after, someone on Instagram started playing multi-tracks from the bad album so i hit pause on the project again just to just in case there was stuff in that that i could use and stuff i ultimately did there was a lot of stopping and starting in the production of this podcast and certainly developments in ai technology have become a, a critical element of how i put these together and just as an example on the again of your use of the word tapestry if you listen to the liberian girl section the drum track is extracted with AI uh, from the original album track. But in doing that, it's not perfect all the way through. So I take the best sounding kick, snare, congas, hi-hats and so on, and then make rebuild the drum track myself. And then I'll take the bass track and do something similar. So I have those two tracks which are extracted from AI with a, that have just been modified to, to hell. And then take certain elements of the uh, synth tracks that were aired 
on Instagram because most of those are just 8-bit anyway, so they haven't lost a huge amount of quality through the bitrate of Instagram. So I've synced those up together as well as the acapella track and then other elements of that have been extracted through AI from the album tracks. So essentially rebuilding the album and this is why it took as long as it did aside from you know some intermittent laziness on my part because a lot of that stuff it mostly fails rather than it succeeds and that's incredibly disheartening when you've spent you know six hours on your sunday off just trying to piece together rebuild a multi-track to a certain song so that's the that's the level of work that tends to go into these things nowadays yeah, absolutely. And it, it certainly shows. And and there's so many takeaways that I had from listening to this episode. One of them was how you showed well, well first of all, I, I one of the things I really enjoyed was how you walked us through the era chronologically. Mm. So it wasn't a track by track on the Bad album. In fact, Bad is one of the last songs that you discuss in the episode. Um, but you walk us through the recording sessions right from the earliest Bad-related sessions, which extend as far back as Victory, mm. I believe. And as you are going through these songs or the evolution of the songs, you often are playing us versions of the songs as they first existed and then how they evolved over time to what they finally came to be as on the album version. Um, that's probably most important, I would say, with the Bad album as compared to any other Michael Jackson album because, you know, you lay out very clearly that Michael was working originally with Matt Forger and John Barnes and Bill Bottrell in his Havenhurst studio and how those songs transitioned from a certain state in that studio environment to be re-recorded by Quincy and Bruce in Westlake and then released on the album. And so we get to hear the songs, many of them Smooth Criminal and those songs that Michael wrote with, with John and Matt and how they evolved. And one of the big takeaways that I had was that, see, I always had in my head they sounded so similar, right, from when John and Matt recorded them to when Quincy redid them. They sounded so similar, and that's why the Havenhurst team deserves so much more credit. But how I reacted this time listening to it was I actually started to really prefer those original mixes because of how sparse not sparse is probably the the wrong word but because jerry hay and his you know horns outfit when they added their work later on to the album versions hearing the original havenhurst versions without the horns it allowed me to really appreciate some of that really funky instrumentation mm. that i think got lost over time a little bit with the fit and finish and the polish that eventually came in um and i, I really enjoyed that Oh, that's lovely. And yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, going back to what you said earlier about the chronology of, of how it's structured, it's it, it was very appropriate for this album because I feel like, I mean, I've always been very disappointed with the Bad 25 documentary because John Barnes appears in it for about as much time as Justin Bieber. And it's mm -hmm. like, really, you're making, you, you, you've made a making of documentary about an album but you've just skipped over at least four of the five years that went into making that album so 
to start with the earliest tracks, Liberian Girl and Dirty Diana, and then move towards the Westlake sessions, like that's the documentary I would have wanted to see because Havenhurst is where most of the action happened, undoubtedly. And yeah, I, I, I completely agree on the bad just has too much varnish on it for my liking. And I mean, I'm a big funk music fan and, you know, very much into prints and all that. I, I prefer the extended mixes of, of the bad songs because it actually gives a chance for those tracks to breathe and mm-hmm. sometimes elements are taken out and you can really appreciate those funky guitars and uh, sometimes it's just the drums playing and you can appreciate the multi-layered drum tracks of the different technologies they were using at the time. So... Yes, you you and I very much agree on that, and that was something that was something very important that I wanted to highlight in this is that with, with any episode that I make, and especially with Michael Jackson because of his limited discography, I always try and leave people having not just having heard the songs like they never have before, but next time they listen to it, they'll hear it in a different way. Yeah, that's exactly the reaction I had. I was appreciating things about the songs that I never had before. And like I said, I even came to appreciate different versions of the song for what they were as independent pieces of music separate from what came out on the album. So I think you've done an absolutely phenomenal job. I also wanted to just give you a personal thank you because it's really lovely to hear, obviously, some of the interviews we've done before, like with John Barnes and Matt Forger, um, found their way into the episode. And it's really lovely to hear that those stories be presented in a documentary format alongside music and then other corroborating stories mm. from other um, producers. So it's nice. Um, like I, I'm super passionate on sort of liberating those stories and getting them out there, but then to hear them be used in another way that will have a, a reach to a different audience beyond the MJ cast is really exciting for us as well. So thank you for including those snippets. Well, I appreciate that. And of course, thank you for for being the liberators of those stories because no one else is really doing it. Um, And you guys have always been very supportive of the work that I do, which has uh, definitely meant a lot. And as I often say to people, I think the interview you did with, with John Barnes is one of the most important documents ever captured uh, in terms of giving an insight into Michael Jackson's artistry. And without that, this this episode of Musicology certainly wouldn't have been able to, to have gotten made. It's just a shame um, there wasn't more opportunity to capture more of those insights with him. But, you know, that's why you and I, we do what, our, what we do, because we're, we're, we're passionate about the, the work. We... And there's so much to discover, even now, like even even listening to, to my own podcast, there's so many gaps that, that could be filled in, but it's just hopefully those stories will come out one day. May, a good lot of them will probably be lost to time, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. That's some of the urgency we feel here at the MJ cast to try and capture these stories. And sometimes we get met with roadblocks where it's like, oh my goodness, we really want to capture that, you you know, your particular story. And Saida Garrett is a good example. We've been going back and forth with her for over two years now, maybe three three or four years, I think, Mm -hmm. um, trying to get her story on record. And there's periods of time where she's 
able to and open to talking and then there's other periods of time where she's super busy and not able to. So we're trying to get that one locked down and we've been in talks with Bill Bottrell through his daughter um, over the years and, uh, you know, it's just a matter of lightning striking, I guess. But it's it's a good feeling to know that when we do capture them, they'll they'll end up also um, in great company with other interviews alongside them and and musical pieces that they worked on in documentaries like yours. I wanted to bring Charlie in as well because I wanted to know what you thought specifically about this, Charlie. One of the reactions I had to listening to John's episode was at the end of it, I had a different feeling than I expected I would had. I felt as I was listening through it that I'd finish up on a happy note feeling like this is an amazing album, brilliant album, so much great work went into it, super happy, yay, I'm going to go listen to the album in full. In fact, when I finished it, I kind of felt a little down because as you do so well, John, you lay out this whole story throughout it of John Barnes and Matt Forger and Bill Bottrell really not getting their due credit on the album in in the liner notes, but also historically they haven't been acknowledged for the hard work that they really did and the ingenuity that they brought to the team. Hmm. And the story, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, um, but I'll, I'll give this one away. So at the end of your episode, you talk about a, what was meant to be a reunion, I guess, where Michael brought some of these people back, like Bill Bottrell and John Barnes. He brought them back to work on a charity song in the mid-2000s. And Michael met John, I think, at Neverland, and I don't know if he met Bill. No. But they were working with him through Tusi's records, I believe, um, out of Bahrain. And Bill worked on a bunch of songs and, and John Barnes was heading up the charity single, I Have This Dream, or the charity song. And you finish it, w- one of the final things you say in the episode is that after John got all the celebrities or whoever to record their bits for the charity single, Michael was due to do his bit, but he just never showed up. And this comes after them going through years of not having proper credit for their work on Bad and then John not working with Michael again after that. And you can hear some of the, I don't know if I'd use the word bitterness, certainly not on the level of like Brian Loren bitterness, but you can hear that in his interview that we did with him, that there's still a lot of unfinished business, I guess Mm. you could say. And Charlie, I wanted to know, did you have a similar reaction when you finished the episode thinking about Michael's relationship with some of these collaborators who really were a part of bringing out his music? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, I just want to say I actually listened to all of your Michael Jackson episodes, John, in um, chronological order, not chronological order in which you made them, but chronological mm-hmm. order of the albums. And I hadn't listened to any of them before, and I thought they were brilliant. So they're they're really fantastic. Thank you. I Obviously, I, I helped you, Jamin, to interview Matt Forger over that two-part special that we did, and I'd listened to the John Barnes episode, which is one of my favorite ever MJ cast episodes. So I had an understanding of the A-team, B-team friction that had existed on the project. But I think what John's episode did was brought it to life because I personally had never heard any of those demos. I'd never heard any of those original Havenhurst demos of the bad tracks. 
I'm not quite sure how you got them, John. How did you? Can you tell us how you got them? Oh, not on air. Okay. <laughs> they blew in through the window. That happens to me as a journalist quite a lot. Things just blow in through the window. So I think that that what that did was demonstrated just how complete the material was. Because it's one thing to have John Barnes saying it sounded exactly the same and I didn't get my credit. But, you know, sometimes people are just cranky, right? But to actually hear the songs as they were and realize that they were pretty much identical, actually, kind of it brings to life the sort of injustice of the situation. It is very sad. And it seems to have been nothing but ego. It seems to, I mean, you can hear that on some of them, the final album versions do sound a bit more polished. They sound cleaner. Mm. But at the same time, they maybe sound a little less funky and a little less raw. So it's a trade-off. So you can see, you can see the differences that Quincy's a team as it was called did but i mean for quincy to have taken so much credit as he did i mean to this day there are stupid music critics all around the western world who say oh it was all quincy michael jackson was Mm -hmm. only good when he was with quincy quincy was the real genius he made michael jackson sound good it's not even actually if anyone bruce but yeah i mean it was very sad and then the kind of the that as you say jamin the ending where they fly out to meet michael in the middle east and he just doesn't even show up is kind of it really doesn't reflect very well on michael at all actually and there are various stories like that which uh which don't reflect on him very well in those final years where he did shit like that to people well it was michael's chance to make it right this whole Hmm. story of the late 80s and you know, Michael thought that the three-album deal was co- contractually done after E.T., but then it wasn't, and then so that's why Quincy came in and just took control of the bad project and eschewed these other guys, and Michael got caught in the middle of it. You know, the Bahrain thing, in my mind, was this is Michael's chance to put to bed all of that bad business and and just settle it and reconnect with these guys. But he didn't. That was a real downer. I actually, I don't think that is what his plan was because he, I think it was more about trying to reassemble the dream team than trying to make amends because yeah. when I was going through some stuff with Taj, um, which I've spoken about previously in, in about 2020 on the show, we found he was what Michael was working with Rod Temperton as well long distance they were they were doing work long distance while michael was in the middle east mm. so i don't think it was necessarily about trying to make amends i think it was more to do with trying to recapture the magic and maybe to do with if there were certain songs that he wanted to dig out that they had worked on then they would be the best people to work with but yeah it's sad it's sad and disappointing that he let them down. And I mean, Brad Buxer told a similar story, didn't he, about saying to Michael, I can't come and work for you unless you're going to guarantee that you're going to look after me. And Michael wouldn't do it. So he just couldn't give up his job as a pilot. He had to walk away from Michael because Michael wasn't giving him the security that he needed. It was almost like he just wanted to be able to pick him up and put him down when he wanted to, which is not on, really. I mean, I'm, I'm grinning ear to ear with your both of your assessment of the the show it seems um had the impact 
that I intended because when people ask me, oh, John, have you made a podcast recently? I say yes, and they ask, what, what is it about? I say, well, it's about Michael Jackson's bad album, but really it's about a guy called John Barnes who essentially co-wrote the album with Michael but didn't get any credit for it. And particularly about uh, the ending, as you, you guys were, were talking about, I mean, I could have ended it by, you know, talking about how successful the bad album was and all that kind of thing. But really, for me, the episode was about one of the what I regard as one of the biggest screw overs in modern pop music history. I mean, John Barnes and his his co-writing of We Are The World and big songs like Smooth Criminal and The Way You Make Me Feel and all of that for his name not to be known that's a huge injustice and you can like what you said uh jamin about hearing the emotion in john barnes's voice it really hits you it like like you feel it you feel the disappointment it might not be obvious because he's a very you know soft-spoken southern african-american man his voice doesn't really waver that much but it's very subtle and you can hear that hurt and you can feel it yep so there wasn't really any other way that i wanted to end the episode other than god what could have been absolutely you know how amazing would have that have been for bill Bottrell, john barnes and michael jackson to record together again given the just the sheer magic they created at havenhurst what could have been yeah and i i think you ended it in just a perfect way because it's a it's a very human story mm. and it also i feel is the end of a longer chapter in michael's career where michael was working with matt for longer than bad obviously you know um they worked together on thriller as well and so really it was the 80s you know it was michael working with matt and john through the 80s and then Michael went and found new, new. Well, I mean, he kept working with Matt, but he essentially, when John and Michael stopped working together, Michael went and found a new guy. Mm. He went and found Brad Boxer to do a, like a lot of that same kind of work that that was going on. And so, to me, it's the end of a very long chapter, not just of the bad album, and and I guess that's why you've titled the show to be the chronology, but it's the end of a whole chapter of Michael working with John. And it's mixed emotions and you can hear the mixed emotions in, in John's voice. Like he, he catches himself when he's talking about Michael and he starts to get a little critical <laughs> as mm. he should. He then catches himself and then, and then reminds himself and us that no, Michael was a genius and I was lucky to work with him, but it was like, what, you know, you don't have to do that. We know that you were screwed over and that's really sad. And Brad Buxer does the same thing. Yeah. When we talk to Brad in our Brad episode, uh, I think it was episode 100, he talks about the story of Stranger in Moscow, which is exactly the same thing going on again, where Brad was the genius behind that song and Michael walked away with the uh, all the credits on that one. And uh, Brad is very real in it about what happens, but then catches himself and again says, oh, no, no, Michael was amazing and he was a genius and I was lucky to work with him. And it's it's kind of that same story over again with a few people. I guess that's what was different about the Invincible era is, is as critical as we can be of those songs that Rodney Jerkins did with Michael. You know, Rodney, Rodney and his Dark Child team became the Teddy, became the Brad. Mm. And um, 
they didn't let it happen. <laughs> mm. You look at the credits on Invincible, they didn't let Michael walk away with those credits. <laughs> Their names yeah. are all over them. But also ti- times have changed in that regard as well. Like there's there's a meme you see every now and then where it has like Beyonce and the lyrics to Who Runs the World and then next to it's a picture of Freddie Mercury with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and it will say, you know, there's seven writers that, we're on um, Who Runs the World and Freddie is the only writer on Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, in reality, if those two songs were recorded together, Bohemian Rhapsody would be credited to every member of Queen because Freddie did not compose that song in its entirety. It was a band effort. Yeah. So there's a bit of that to it as well. But I, I think, you know, it's interesting what you said about um, the episode kind of uh, representing the end because that was that was a hard balance for me in writing it because as much as yes it was the end of John Barnes's relationship with Michael I also and and I I I don't think I I know I definitely didn't emphasize this enough but it was also the moment Michael took control you know he Mm -hmm. made the calls to Barnes and Forger and Betrayal he made those initial decisions it was just undermined by I guess contractual obligations Okay, I've got to ask you, another thing that was in my head as I was listening was the debate about Streetwalker and another part of me. <laughs> yeah. um, and you laid that out so well around how they couldn't decide who what song was going to be on the album and, you know, Michael wanted one and, and Quincy wanted the other and then they deferred over to Frank DeLeo or whatever. Yeah. And I got to ask you, do you think they made the right call? It's <laughs> a good question. Um. <sighs> I don't know. I I definitely enjoy Streetwalker more as a song. I don't really think it fits on the album, though. I don't know. What do you reckon? I think, I mean, look, I prefer Streetwalker as a song myself Mm -hmm. to Another Part of Me. And because Another Part of Me was so integral to Captain EO, I'm kind of like, oh, that was a chance for a brand new song. And Streetwalker was so good. I really like it. But then again, I think it's justice for John <laughs> that another part of me is on the album. So yeah, I'm cool true. with that in the end. I'm cool with that in the end. Um, okay, but just good friends though, like you're you're pretty critical of that song in the episode and, and different people that you, voices you bring in, like even Quincy is very critical of that song. And I also am very critical of that song. It's probably my least favorite Michael Jackson song. But Charlie, how did you go hearing that? Because I know you're a big Just Good Friends guy. <laughs> In, well, firstly, hearing you say it's the worst Michael Jackson song, full stop, is ludicrous because, <laughs> in, you know, Invincible exists, right? So, and every song on that album is worse than Just Good Friends. But actually, Just Good Friends is my favorite song on the Bad Album. Whoa, okay. Because, yeah. I know, right? I, I just love it. I just think it's... Um, I don't understand why everyone hates it. It's really funky. It's really fun. I mean, it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not incisive social commentary, right? It's not, sure. the, it's not the history album, but it's a fun song. I mean, I don't, I cannot comprehend why anyone would rather listen, for example, to I Just Can't Stop Loving You than Just Good <laughs> Friends. That to me is demented. <laughs> I just, I, that, I've never been a huge fan of the bad album Full Stop, to be honest, because it sounds, in my opinion, apart from Invincible, is the most dated sounding album of Michael's canon. 
solo canon, adult mm. solo canon. I have more affection for it since hearing the John Barnes interview on the MJ cast and since John's episode, for example, because of the, the the really interesting way in which it was put together, the way that they would go out and create new sounds and be striving for something that was sounded different than everything else that everyone else was doing. However, I do still think it has that distinctly late 80s synth heavy sound, yeah. which puts it very much in that period. I mean, bad as a song, for example, I can't listen to. I just hate it. The way it made me feel, I don't like. I'm afraid that drives me up the wall. Oof. Leave me alone. I find difficult. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so whereas Just Good Friends clearly is very synth heavy, also and very 80s sounding, but it's just more fun. I think it's got a much fatter, funkier mm. sound, which is more in keeping with what. I generally like anyway, it's got more of that hard edge to it and it's more it's more like being hit over the head with a dustbin lid, which is sort of what I like. <laughs> I was out on a walk earlier and I was listening to Give It Up, Turn It Loose on a loop and that's kind of what I'm into. So Yeah. And I love Stevie. I mean, why would anyone rather listen to I Just Can't Stop Love It? I just don't accept that. I just actually think that's sectionable. <laughs> just uh just <laughs> Just to just to clear the record, I I actually like Just Good Friends as well. I don't love it, and yeah, it's not my favourite from the album. That's that that certainly woke me up this morning. But uh, there was just no other way for me to write about it other than I mean, what I said in the episode I don't think was particularly critical. It was just fact. You know, Stevie has an amazing vault of unreleased material. Michael worked on at least 60 songs during this period. It's just, I think the 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 biggest critique I have about Just Good Friends is that they outsourced the production and the writing. But otherwise, in terms of a song, I mean, it's got some of the best vocals on the album, in my opinion. It's got great energy between Michael and Stevie. The content is just a bit, you know, not as sophisticated as what both artists were capable of in, at that period. Every time I listen to the Bad album, I get surprised by the sequencing of the songs because I don't mm. listen to it in order all that often anymore like I did when I was younger. But because I probably have watched more Michael Jackson tours over the years mm. than I have listened to the albums in order recently... I always get surprised that the song Man in the Mirror is right in the middle of the album. 100%. Whenever I play it, I'm always expecting it's going to finish the album because later Michael Jackson albums finish with, you know, I mean, not finish with, but, you know, Dangerous has uh, Keep the Faith towards the end. History has the song History towards the end. Invincible has Cry towards the end. So I'm always expecting Man in the Mirror to come much later than it does on the album. And I and I wonder whether if Michael had have made the bad album later than he actually did, whether it would be sequenced in the way it is. Yeah, I agree. I think Bad has pretty awful sequencing. Like Man in the Mirror is definitely a you know, that's the song you end on. Yeah. And and, and like I said before, even just the the track lengths, like you know, maximum of like four minutes for each song. It's just for those kinds of tracks, it just doesn't really work for me. That's why I prefer the extended versions or even sometimes the live versions. 
Well, there's that great album that came out. It's an official album and it came out after Bad and it's called The Bad Mixes. Yeah. And um, it's got a lot of the songs, but in much longer versions and I and alternate versions. I think that album has the Annie mix of Smooth Criminal, which has mm. a real bass guitar instead of the synth bass mixed with the bass guitar. Yeah, I, I actually kind of prefer that version, to be honest. The longer versions are, they breathe a lot, a lot better. John, how do you feel when you hit release? So you work on these episodes for, you know, sometimes, like you said, years at a time. When it comes time to click release and, and or publish or whatever, what, what goes through your mind? What do you do after that? Do you pour a nice cold beer and sit back and watch it all unfold online or what do you do? Uh, because of the time I release them, usually I just go to bed. <laughs> it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of relief and especially with this one because it was such a long time working on it. It's not that I'm a perfectionist or anything because I don't I don't really believe in that anyway, but I always end up hitting release with a bit of regret that, oh, I should have done this, that, or whatever else, or I should have cleaned this up, you know. But it's just, you know, it's done. I'll be working on it forever if I don't hit release now. So fly, my children. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess sometimes the gestation and birthing process is a little bit more difficult than others. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so well done, John, again, on your incredible work. And I encourage all of our listeners to just listen, listen and enjoy and 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 do it while you've got time and, and a good audio system so you can lay back and, and just really soak in the story of the Bad Album, the 80s of John Barnes, which is an incredible story to listen to. How many more MJ apps have you got in the tank? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm kind of tempted to go back and redo the the Dangerous album. The most, uh, because that was the first episode I ever did, but the first season is, I was still, you know, as is always the case, I was still finding my feet with what format I wanted the podcast to be in and I present things very differently and yeah. So I've been tempted to go back and revisit that. The Invincible album is probably my most requested one, but that wouldn't, <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't know how to present that other than here's how not to make an album, you know? That could be interesting. Well, Michael think- Jackson, 1998 to 2001, because, you know, I mean, I don't know whether you'd be willing to do this. It would definitely depart a little bit from the musical analysis, but tying in the broader story of Mike, what Michael was dealing with at the time could be quite an interesting thing to have on record. Yeah. And that's, that's honestly, that's another reason I try and I probably steer clear of that. I don't, I really just like to make it about the music. Like, certainly mm. with the Dangerous and History episodes, there were, yeah, you have to touch on his personal life to understand a lot of that stuff. But I, I think there are other podcasts that can better analyze that side of Michael's life. And I do prefer to leave it up to them and just focus on the music. Yeah. But otherwise, to be honest, I look forward to doing episodes on other artists for a while because I've lived with this one for so <laughs> long. Great. Great. Well, amazing work again. And thank you for coming on the MJ cast to talk about your latest episode. It's always wonderful to have you on. And it's always wonderful to be on. I, I, like I said earlier, I very much appreciate the shout outs you guys give and the amount of work you do. And a lot of what I've done wouldn't be achievable without the stuff that you, you guys do. So 
uh, always appreciated and always love being a guest. No worries. No worries at all. Um, John, where can people find you online if they want to connect with you? Well, uh, I am on Twitter, Cameron underscore John. I also have a, a Facebook page that people can follow. Uh, I'm on Instagram if people really want to see my selfies. I do put some, I do advertise the podcast a bit on there. But otherwise, the podcast is on all good platforms. Um, the better ones are certainly iTunes and Spotify, where you can leave a like and a review. That's always appreciated. Yeah, just Google me and I'll pop up. Fantastic. And Charlie Thompson, if listeners uh, want to connect with you and maybe get kept up to date with things that are going on with uh, legal cases, where can where can people find you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter as at C.E. Thompson. However, that's currently locked down because of a story that I was working on in my day job this week for a newspaper involving some dubious characters. And I'm on Instagram I think it's C.E. Thompson Journo. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as C.E. Thompson <laughs> Journo, and then I assume that has also transferred over as the name on my Threads account, which I don't use. So really, the only thing you can follow me on at the moment that would be in any way worthwhile is Instagram, although I'm I'm unclear how worthwhile even that would be for people that are interested in MJ Cast it's content. Good. It's very worthwhile. You're a great-looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, thank you, Charlie. And also listeners, of course, can follow the MJ cast. We are the MJ cast on uh, Twitter, on Instagram. We're on Mastodon at the MJ cast at Mastodon.social. We are on threads, but we don't use it at the moment. I think, I don't know, unless Elise is threading there. Is that what you say? Threading? <laughs> uh, maybe, but <laughs> we're all over the place. We're kind of like split up at the moment. It's so funny. We used to be really like we'd all post on on the same social networks. Now, Charlie tends to do most of the Twitter. Elise tends to do most of the Instagram and I tend to do most of the Mastodon. So <laughs> just uh, pick and choose as you want. We can also be subscribed to, obviously, as a podcast uh, in lots of different places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We are on YouTube as well. If you'd like to hear our episodes on there, though, they come out quite late on YouTube because we like people to hear them as a podcast on podcast platforms first. If you would like to support us, there's lots of different ways you can do that. Um, you can just go to the show notes and if you want to give us a small donation, uh, you can do that through PayPal, uh, which is really, really, it's wonderful when people do that because it just keeps us going in terms of running costs, equipment. Uh, we also love to donate to charities here and there um, when things happen. Uh, we also have a shop. If you go to the mjcast.com slash shop, uh, we have merch, T-shirts and different things for sale. And that means you can walk around and rep Michael Jackson and the MJ cast all at the same time. Uh, and we get a little bit out of that as well to help keep us going. So thank you. You can learn about all the different ways you can support the MJ cast through going to our website, themjcast.com. So please head over there. Uh, I just want to give a few little thank yous. I would like to thank uh, one of our youngest listeners, Coyote Cunningham. Happy sixth birthday for June 26th. It is really, really exciting that we have listeners stretching all the way from being as young as you to being as old as Charlie Thompson. So <laughs> really, really appreciate uh, all of our listeners and happy birthday, Coyote. Sorry, Charlie. I know you're actually younger than me. So anyway. And by the way, Coyote, that's the day before my birthday. So it's a 
good time of year, isn't it, to have a birthday? Um, six months before Christmas, right in the middle. Uh, and justice for some, we want to give you a big thank you for sharing our Geraldine episode. That was really nice of you to do that on Twitter. Appreciated. Uh, Petra Bayer for a very, very generous donation through PayPal that I woke up to this morning. Thank you. That's going to help fund some exciting things we want to do in the future. And a little bit of a shout out too to some of our, like I said before, I'm not really on the other social networks, but we've had a bunch of people engaging with us on Mastodon recently, um, chatting to us and following our posts and all kind of things. So I want to say uh, thank you to Shadow Deeps, to Nikki Seas, uh, to Carnivious, to Chrissy Lou, Bradley Edwards Charles, all of the different people following us online and engaging with us. Hello, and we see you, and you're awesome. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the MJ Cast. Hopefully, listeners, you're all feeling very satisfied with our updates on news. Make sure you head over and listen to the latest episode of JC's Musicology, all on the bad era. It's amazing. Thank you for joining me today to do this episode. It's been so much fun. And this is me signing out from Studio Brisbane. Keep Michaeling. Charlie, well done again on the Geraldine episode. It was awesome. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I thought it went pretty well. It was so good. Um, and, and special shout out to Carter as well, who did a lot of work editing that episode uh, with me. It was it was not an easy one to edit, to be honest. Uh, there was a lot of, lot of stuff going on in there. And with- Elise also. Elise was on mission control that day. Yes, for for all of her communications. Well, yeah, she was, she was running. I keep yeah. forgetting that. I'm so sorry, Elise. <laughs> Elise was running the... The, the doodads while I was doing all the talking. Yeah, that's right. And did a lot of the comms as well back and forward with Geraldine actually setting it all up. That was not an easy episode to put together. Listeners probably don't realize this, um, be, but I, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit at the end of the episode when you sort of summarized it, you know, why the recording had to finish so suddenly. But um, we, we've been talking with Geraldine even as recently as two days ago, we've been emailing with her. So we've been emailing with her for months at this point around this episode. We're still in talks with her to get the uh, scans or photos of her contemporaneous diary. So hopefully they can still come through. But I mean, it is a it was an amazing episode and we captured like 95%, 99% of what I think, you know, we wanted to ask her. It would have been really interesting to hear as well from her, though, I think, after it cut out her reactions to some of the other things that happened to Michael. Like, I would love to have heard, you know, what was her frame of mind when the allegations broke, the the Arviso allegations. 
you know, what what was she thinking? What did she immediately do after that? And those kind of things. Did she watch Living with Michael Jackson? What was going through her head as she was watching Michael holding hands with Gavin on the couch and those kind of moments? Yeah, I mean, that was those were definitely some things that were on my list to talk to her about because it was coming across as it was coming across that Geraldine had a pretty unshakable belief that Michael was innocent. And she uses the word framed a lot. She uses the word innocent and framed which is, you know, pretty definitive language. I guess it's difficult for any of us to stand in Geraldine's shoes because we were not there in the office and we didn't see and hear what she saw and heard. Now, it may be that what she was witnessing, if any of us had been in the room, we would have the same unshakable belief because there's a difference. You know, Geraldine has written a book and she can recount I heard somebody say this, I heard somebody say that, and it doesn't have the same impact as experiencing it in real life. And a, a really good example of that is I remember speaking to Paul Rodriguez, who was the jury foreman in the 2005 trial, and he said something to me which I'd never thought about before. It completely changed my outlook on the whole thing. He said, it's one thing to read a transcript but all you get from a transcript is the words. There's a big difference between the words and between being in the courtroom and seeing the way that people are acting. Mm. And he said, what you don't get from the transcript is the incredibly suspicious behavior of the Arviso family. He said that whenever the Arvizos were being questioned by Mesero, whenever they were being cross-examined by the defense, you would see them looking across, almost pleading with Tom Snedden and the prosecution to tell them what to say. Mm. He said it was, it, you, you would see they would get asked a question, which was really tricky for them to answer because it catastrophically undermined their account. And they would be looking across to the prosecution table as if to say, help us, help us. What are we supposed to say? And that was just one example that he gave. I remember somebody else told me that about something Janet Alviso did in the courtroom, which of course is not in the transcript because it wasn't during testimony, where as she was walking out of the, either into or out of, I think it was out of the courtroom one day, she had to walk past the jury bar, past the jury box to to go to wherever she was going. And as she reached the jury box, she put her arm on the bar, like there's a, like a brass bar that goes across the front of the jury box. And she sort of walked very slowly along the jury box, staring into each of the jurors' eyes one at a time whilst dragging her hand along the bar. And that they describe it as almost like something a mournful woman would do in a silent movie. This, it was so ridiculous. Hmm. This, such a, such a ridiculous piece of terrible acting. And that you don't get that from a transcript. Anyway, so I digress. So what I'm saying is Geraldine has a very unshakable belief in Michael Jackson's innocence, which to somebody like us, you can certainly, when you, when you hear and read her account, you can certainly see how things were looking very suspicious. So ordinarily, if you are the person bringing an allegation, if you go to the police to report a crime, 
and you are an innocent person who is the victim of a crime, you generally don't exclaim, it's my ass that's on the line and I could be going to jail. That's generally not something that an innocent victim of a crime suddenly exclaims. So you can certainly see how things look suspicious, but at the same time, it, it you know, objectively speaking, it doesn't add up to proof of innocence. It's, you know, certainly reasonable doubt, yeah. but it's not proof of innocence. But Geraldine has this unshakable belief. So one thing that I definitely wanted to do with Geraldine was to question her about the Arviso case, about the Bashir documentary, about the Wade and Jimmy case, and to interrogate her a bit about why it is that she is so she remains so firm in her belief in Michael Jackson's innocence and that he was framed. And I suspect that it probably comes down to the same thing that Paul Rodriguez was saying to me about the trial, which is that there's a difference between the verbatim words and being in the room and seeing people's body language and seeing the way that they interact with each other and picking up on the shiftiness. Mm -hmm. You can, you can, there's a lot of things you can intuit as a human being from that kind of information, which you don't get from the verbatim transcription of what was actually said yeah so i i wonder if that is what it is i agree but yeah certainly those were things that i wanted to question her about but we just we couldn't do it no we tried as we said at the end of the episode we tried to get geraldine back for another session just to finish the interview but it just proved so problematic with emails going back and forth and us suggesting times and then Geraldine couldn't do those times and it just dragged on and on to the point of ridiculousness and we just had to get the episode out. Well, there was even one time where we where she agreed to be there at a certain time yes. and then we were waiting on the call and she didn't arrive. And so, you know, she's a very busy person as well. So it looks like it's unlikely that the rest of that episode will be completed. Um, but what we can do probably one day is if we ever do another episode where we're talking specifically about um, the allegations, maybe we could have her back as a panel member or something like that and ask her some of those questions. Um, another interview that we did similarly years ago, you may remember, is when we spoke to Aphrodite Jones and we only got through about half of the questions we wanted to ask her because she had to leave suddenly as well. But who knows, maybe we'll hear from some of these people again in the future. Was I on that Aphrodite episode? Barely sure you were. I Let's have a look. It, but I know I've interviewed her a couple of times. That would, if I... That would be my third time interviewing her if that if I was by it. So I just maybe I just don't remember it. it's all blended into each other. Uh yep. Yeah. Episode eighty one, you interviewed her with Q and okay. myself. Well there you go. Yeah. So well done again, Charlie. I, I think you do a great job heading up our Vindication Day episodes. We've had some great ones over the years, whether it be Brett Barnes or Larry Nimmer or Aphrodite and Tom Ezero and you know, Scott Ross and all of these different people connected to the the allegations. And hopefully we get more and more um, interesting people to speak to as well in the future. I, I like it in your recent ones, how you've even, um, especially in the Brett one and the Aphrodite one, uh, sorry, the Brett one and the Geraldine one, I've noticed how you are almost taking on the position of not doubting them, 
I know you believe what they're saying, but you're taking on that perspective of devil's advocate where you're putting to them, what if somebody said this to you? Or how do you square this out? Or how do you reason this perspective? Or what makes you so sure that you're, you're correct? And um, put, asking them those questions like that really gives, and they know what you're doing. They, they know that you're not being disrespectful by doing that. It gives them an opportunity to really substantiate why they believe what they do, which is very valuable. Well, I think it's in keeping with the MJ Cast's approach generally, which is quite journalistic. I mean, people who've listened to the Joe Vogel episode or the Travis Payne episode, for example, will know that the MJ Cast is not afraid to take quite a journalistic position and ask people difficult questions because we're people that are interested in getting to the truth. And I think there's very little value in having two people on a call going, isn't it terrible how Michael was innocent and everybody said he was guilty? There's no value in that at all. You want to interrogate the account and identify its strengths and weaknesses, because if Michael is innocent, then his salvation will be in the truth. There's no, po- you know, is there's just no value in getting Geraldine on the line and just exchanging pleasantries. I mean, you know, we we uncovered, um, I think, new information. I think that she hadn't spoken about before in terms of the Mary Fisher article, for example. Yes. So nobody, I mean, I've never heard Geraldine talk about that before. The fact that Pelicano appears just took her diary and gave it to Fisher. I mean, it doesn't make any difference, really. I mean, apart from that Fisher really should have checked that it was... Maybe she did. Maybe she rang Rothman, might have rung Rothman and said, did you have a, you know, assistant called Geraldine or whatever? So she may have firmed it up in another way, but that was very interesting to find out how that had happened. I think everybody has always assumed that Geraldine spoke to fish. <laughs> so yeah. it's, um, you find out new stuff when you start um, probing a little bit. I mean- That really surprised me that bit because I kept thinking- how hard would it have been for Mary Fisher to track down and speak to Geraldine? Like, why did she not do that? <laughs> well, yeah, certainly. And it certainly raises questions about uh, Mary Fisher's article. So, for example, if she took Pelican, if we, and we don't know that she did, she may have verified it through other means other than speaking to Geraldine. But if she took Pelicano's word for it, that this was a legitimate diary from Rothman's secretary, then is there other information in her article that she just took Pelicano's word for or other people's word for? Because she is the primary source, for example, for the sodium amatol story. Mm-hmm. Now, in her article, she attributes that to a particular news station on a particular date. It's very, very specific. She says, on this date, on this show, on this station, Evan Chandler gave a statement saying X, Y, and Z. Now, at that time, glossy magazines yeah. like GQ did have pretty rigorous fact-checking procedure. I mean, nowadays, places, I mean, almost nobody has sub-editors and fact-checkers because the, there's just no money for them. But back then, they would have had teams of fact-checkers. So I have no reason to doubt that she is correct about that. However, why didn't the fact checkers ring Geraldine? You see what I mean? It's, it's very peculiar yeah. that they would publish, Ger- they would rely on Geraldine's diary without talking to Geraldine. Now, Absolutely. as I say, they could have rung Rothman. 
and said, did you have a, a secretary called Geraldine? Now, Rothman, I'm not going to go into specifics about this, right? But Rothman did not believe the Chandler story. And he made it known to the defense in 2005 that he did not believe the Chandler's story. So it's possible that he may have cooperated. They may have fact-checked it with Rothman. You know, you don't know. So we don't know that Fisher was lax or that GQ was lax. Because it wasn't just GQ. There was at least one other glossy magazine that ran that article as well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was just one little thing that came out of the Geraldine interview that was like, hmm, that's interesting. No one's ever heard that before. Yeah. And that's that's what happens when you when you drill down and, and ask questions and um and go a bit deeper rather than just getting Geraldine on and saying, Gore, isn't it terrible? Poor old Michael. So I think I think that it's just in keeping with what the MJ cast does. I mean, you are you are very good at the same thing. You, oh, you took the lead on Joe Vogel, you took the lead on Travis, and you, you were pretty unflinching in those situations. What about Anthony Pelicano? This guy is a convicted criminal. Um, he's since been released from prison. How would you feel ethically about having him on and interviewing him if he were to agree? Oh, I certainly think I think it's worth interviewing him. I mean, it's just about how much how much stock do you put in what he tells you? Quite often, it's about corroboration. You know, I mean, you often have to interview people that you might not necessarily believe or people that have a vested interest or a grudge or everybody's always working an angle everywhere. So it's not just about, it's it's worth pe- getting people's account on record because even if elements of that account turn out to be inaccurate. It's not always uh, an indication of dishonesty. Sometimes people just uh, genuinely remember things incorrectly. Yeah. But it's about building a bigger picture. So interviewing Pelicano on his own, maybe you would not put a whole lot of stock in what he tells you because he is a, a dubious character. However, interviewing Pelicano and Geraldine Hughes and other people connected to the case and building a bigger picture and seeing where do they corroborate each other. What the Pelicano told me is corroborated by this person and that person. That's when it starts to become valuable, I think. Yeah. So it's, it definitely would be worth talking to him. And it would be worth talking to Fisher. I mean, I suppose you've had to talk to some pretty nasty characters in your career as a journalist anyway, outside of your Michael Jackson investigations. Uh, well, certainly, yes. I mean, I um, I do a lot of crime reporting. I have interviewed and trying to have interviewed at least three convicted killers, although all of them insist they were innocent. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I've uh, <laughs> I've dealt with some tricksy characters over the years, and uh, I mean, I remember I went to a, a journalism masterclass once with Nick Davies, who's just like. The greatest, I think, one of, if not the greatest, and one of the greatest ever British investigative journalists. And he was talking about how he spent a few years investigating international child trafficking. And he established pretty quickly that if you want to find out about international child trafficking, the best people to interview are pedophiles. Yeah. So he just spent a huge amount of time tracking down and interviewing pedophiles, you know. So Sometimes to get to the heart of uh, of something, you have to interview some pretty dodgy people. 
you certainly run up across some dodgy people in, in my line of work. It's about getting their account, getting their account down honestly, accurately. I mean, by that, I mean, you know, get taking down an accurate version of, of their account and then seeing what you can and can't stand up. And quite often people will come to us with a story, which is amazing. You know, the story that they're telling you is amazing. And you end up only being able to corroborate 50% of it, but that 50% is still amazing. <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it definitely would be worth talking to Pelicano. Yeah. And that's something listeners probably don't know a little bit about the MJ cast is, is we do have people approach us sometimes. I can think of a few people offhand over the last year that have approached us or, or fans have tried to set up interviews with other people. And um, we've got to vet them. Sometimes we have conversations with them first and, and weigh all that up before we decide, is that story reliable enough to put forward? But anyway. Yeah. All right. I think it might be time for some lunch. Lunch. It's time for bed. Where I am. <laughs> All right. Well, sleep well. All right. Yeah, you too. It was good to speak to you. I'll, I'll speak to you soon.